We're looking at a message today entitled, The Supremacy of Christ. And I hope it's a blessing to you. Find your place in Colossians 1 and verse 15. A few years ago, a distinguished panel of 28 scholars and historians were called together. And their task was this, to select the 100 most significant events of history. And then they were to rank those events in order of importance. Some of the events that made that list are the NASA moonwalk of 1969, Neil Armstrong putting the foot of mankind on the dust of the moon. The invention of the movable type by Gutenberg made that list. Discovery of the Americas, inventions such as the airplane and discovery of radio waves and penicillin. Also on that list was the invention of the Internet, not by Al Gore, though, as you may have heard. The fall of the Berlin Wall, 9-11, and also on that list, the life of Jesus Christ. Now imagine for a moment that you were a scholar on that panel to rank those events. How would you cast your vote? Most importantly, where would you put Jesus upon that list? Well, after... Months of debate, the panel reported that they considered that the most significant event in all of history to be, listen, drum roll, the discovery of America. Here's what was in second place. They said it was the invention of the movable type by Gutenberg. They had 11 different events tied for third place, such as Alexander Graham Bell's invention of the telephone and Henry Ford's assembly line. When they came to fourth place, there were four events tied and lumped together. The writing of the U.S. Constitution, the development of the X-ray, invention of the airplane, and also, number four on that, was the life of Jesus of Nazareth. You agree or disagree with how they place those? Well, the reality is, friend, that Jesus doesn't belong on any list because He is supreme. He is preeminent. He's in a league all of his own. There's no one above him, no one beside him, no one like him. Think of it, friend. Jesus had no servants, and yet they called him master. He had no degrees, and yet they called him teacher. He had no medicine, and yet they called him healer. He had no armies, yet the rulers of the world feared him. He had no title, rank, or office, and yet the winds and the waves obeyed him. He committed no crime, yet they crucified him. He defied the powerful, dumbfounded the wise, and defeated the grave. He lived in obscurity, humility, and poverty, and yet today, his name, Jesus Christ, is spoken of every corner across this globe. We should not be surprised that Jesus was ranked so low in the eyes of the world. I mean... After all, the first time he came, the Jews and the Romans thought so highly of him that they had him crucified. But I like what the late D. James Kennedy wrote in one of his books. Look at what he said. He said, quote, All the armies that ever marched, of all the navies that ever sailed, of all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. And that brings me to the problem in the Colossian church. It's not all that different from the problem that we see today in our world. 
There were many folks in the first century who were confused about the identity of Christ. All manner of Gnostic teaching and heresy had threatened to undermine the church in Colossae. So there was lots of speculation and opinion about who Jesus really was. Some argued that Jesus wasn't fully God. Some taught that He was the first created being. Others put Christ on par with other deities in the ancient world. That's why Paul picked up his pen, the last part of Colossians chapter 1, to set the record straight. And in verses 15 through 19 of Colossians 1, Paul teaches about the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ. And he does this in three important ways. So if you are taking notes today, I want you to notice the supremacy of Christ. First off, Christ reveals God's character. Christ reveals God's character. Just as words on a page reveal an author's mind, or a paint on a canvas reveals an artist's skill, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, reveals to us the character and the attributes of Father God. Now, how is this so? Well, Paul writes in verse 15 that He is the image of God. Look what he says beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that word that's translated there, image, in our text, it's an interesting one. It actually carries the thought of a stamped impression left by the royal signet ring of a king. So in ancient times, when a document was to be verified or certified by a king, he would take the king's signet on that ring and it would be pressed into hot wax and thus leaving the image or the imprint of the king. And that's what Paul is getting at here, that Jesus is the image of God. If we were to use a modern analogy, we would say that Jesus is an HD photograph of God. Hebrews 1.3 is a good parallel passage to read alongside this one. It says there, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Remember what Jesus told the disciple Philip in John 14 and verse 8. He said, If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. So think about it. As the image of God in His birth, we saw humility. In His ministry, we saw mercy. In His sermons, we heard profound wisdom. In His miracles, we saw His power. In His death, we saw love. In His resurrection, we saw victory. And in His return, we'll see His glory. He is the image of God. Now notice the term there at the end of verse 15, that little phrase, firstborn over creation. Now, don't get tripped up by that. That does not mean that Jesus was created. In fact, there are many cultists like the Jehovah's Witness. They will tell you, as they twist the Scriptures, that Jesus was the first created being by God the Father. And they will use this verse as a way to confuse people. But notice here that firstborn does not imply chronology, but priority. What he's saying here is Jesus is God's only begotten Son, which means that He's unique. He's one of a kind. He's first and foremost. He's highly exalted. There's none like Him or above Him. He is supreme. He is preeminent as the image of God. Not only that, 
as he reveals the character of God, the image of God. But notice what verse 19 says. Drop down there. He is the incarnation of God. Verse 19 says this, For in Him, watch this, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not just part, not just half, not 30%, but all. All means all, and that's all that all can ever mean. Amen? He's fully God. He's fully man. The incarnation of God. Oh, friend, the incarnation. It's a riddle wrapped inside a mystery Inside an enigma, you'll never be able to really plumb the depths of it. Here you have the Creator becoming a creature. Deity clothing Himself in humanity. Eternity invading time. Royalty donning the rags of poverty. Right here in verse 19, we have a moment of Christmas in the book of Colossians. And normally we would look at this passage during Christmas time, but it's appropriate any time you want to understand who Christ really is. Remember what John said in the prologue of his gospel, John 1 and verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the Logos, the God who has no beginning and no ending, uh, He became one of us and moved into the human neighborhood. You might say it like this, the divine playwright entered his own drama as the hero of history in which the king died to save his subjects. The greatest story ever told by the greatest man who ever lived who gives the greatest offer that could ever be given the offer of salvation. He's the incarnation of God. Look at what Philip Yancey wrote. He said this about the profound mystery of God in flesh. He said, In the incarnation, God's Son deliberately handicapped Himself, exchanging omniscience for a brain that learned Aramaic word for word. Omnipresence for two legs and an occasional donkey. Omnipotence for arms strong enough to saw wood, but too weak for self-defense. Instead of overseeing a hundred billion galaxies at once, he sweated in a carpenter's shop. Because of Jesus, he said, we never need to question God's desire for intimacy. Jesus gave up heaven so that we might be close to God. So as you read these passages today, understand this, friend. Uh, it's not a murky, mystical, uh, out-of-the-world uh, doctrine. God is not a force. God is not a feeling. Uh, God is not a fairy tale that was invented by ancient man to make himself feel better about what happens in the afterlife. His name is not Buddha. His name is not Allah or Nirvana. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the character, the image, the imprint, and the Son of God today. Friend, there's none like Him. The supremacy of Christ. But then also notice this, number two. Not only does Christ reveal God's character, but also Christ rules over God's creation. He rules over God's creation. Now Paul gives us an epic picture of the cosmic Christ, not only as the creator of the universe, but the sustainer of the universe. Now notice, under this heading, he produced everything. He produced everything. Look at what verse 16 says in our text, for by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And all things were created through Him and for Him. Heard about a group of scientists who decided they had gotten too big for their britches, really, and said, we don't need God anymore. After all, look at what we can do. Uh, We can clone human beings. We have the ability to travel to space. We have the internet. We have smartphones. We have medicine that can heal deadly diseases. And so this group of scientists got together and they said to God, God, we don't need you anymore. Science explains it all. And God replied, He said, oh, you don't need me, huh? Well, how about we have a little contest? How about we put your theory to the test? Can you create a man like I did in the beginning with Adam? Let me see you make a human being. And so the scientists thought, well, we can certainly do that. We've got the equipment. We've got the know-how. And so one of the scientists pulled out a shovel. He plunged it into the ground to get a scoop of dirt. And God said, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop right there. You go get your own dirt. (laughs) Go get your own dirt. Can I just suggest uh, some non-negotiables here today? Let's use our brains. A little bit of logic. Something that's lost on our culture here today. Listen, you don't get life from non-life. You can't get mind from matter. You don't get design from chaos. And friend, you don't get something from nothing. You see, if, but if you talk to the intellectuals of our day, the atheists and the skeptics and those sitting in the ivory tower of academia, they tell us that the reason we are here today is because of a big bang and because of millions of years of Darwinian evolution. Uh, Brother Doug, that's from goo to you via the zoo. Uh, That's from the infantile to the reptile to the Gentile. Have you ever heard anything so foolish in your life? I think about what one of my old seminary professors used to say. Once I was an amoeba beginning to begin, then I was a tadpole with my tail tucked in, then I was a monkey hanging from a tree, and now I'm a college professor with a Ph.D. You see, when I talk to folks who espouse evolution, I ask them a simple question. How many times have you seen a tornado blow through a junkyard and the randomness of that fully assemble a working 747 jumbo jet? You ever seen that before? You ever taken a stick of dynamite and thrown it into a printing press and out comes the Declaration of Independence? And yet you expect me to believe that a strand of DNA which is infinitely more complex than the library of life started as electrified pond scum. You've got to be kidding me. Don't insult my intelligence. Friend, listen to me. It takes a lot of faith to believe that no one plus nothing equals everything. That's why I say today, and always, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. (laughs) It takes a lot of faith to believe in no one plus nothing equals everything. Think about it. Every book must have an author. Every skyscraper must have an architect. Every cake must have a chef. And friend, the only way that you get a universe of such beauty and complexity is you have to have an all-powerful, all-knowing God who is Creator. As you read these verses in Colossians 1, you should also think about Genesis 1.1 and also John 1.3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And then John 1, 3, look at what John says there in his prologue. All things were made through Him, referring to Christ. Now, interestingly, if you notice this verse in Colossians 1, 16, it covers everything. All that He created. There's heaven, that refers to space. There's the earth, that refers to matter. There's the word created, that refers to energy and time, a moment when it all came into existence. And visible and invisible, that covers the physical as well as the spiritual. Amen? Now, anybody who doubts the existence of God, I always tell them, think about the fine-tuning of our universe. There's a very well-known scientist, his name is Hugh Ross, he's a Christian. He has identified more than 100 parameters of design of our universe, and he says that if these parameters were altered in just the slightest degree to one way or another, life would not happen. So think about these. The earth, we're told, is 93 million miles from the sun in our solar system. Do you know that if the earth were closer, then the heat of the sun would be too great and all the liquid on planet earth would evaporate? But if the earth were further away, then all of that liquid water would become ice. Earth perfectly placed right where it needs to be in the Goldilocks zone, not too far, uh, not too close, so that life can flourish. You know, the earth is, is tilted on its axis, they say, at 23 and a half degrees. The scientists say that if it were altered by the slightest bit, if that degree axis were off, then the surface temperatures would be too extreme for life here on earth. Hey, in your prayers, when was the last time you stopped and you thanked God for the planet Jupiter? <laughs> I'm serious. Listen to this. If Jupiter were not in its current orbit, then earth would be constantly bombarded by space debris. But Jupiter's immense gravitational pull, they say, acts like a cosmic vacuum cleaner attracting asteroids and comets that would otherwise strike planet Earth. Hey, God, thank you for putting Jupiter where you did. What about the moon? You know that the moon is the perfect size. It's approximately one quarter or one-fourth the size of the earth. If the moon were larger, do you know that it would cause the earth to tilt too far on its axis to one side, and thus the sun would create unbearable heat? If you also enlarge the size of the moon, it would slow the earth's rotation, making a day longer than 24 hours. You see, I love what Robert Jastrow wrote in his book, God and the Astronomers. Listen to what he says. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have no doubt been sitting there for centuries reading Genesis 1-1. They could have saved themselves a lot of research and trouble if they just turned to the book of Colossians chapter 1 and understood the simple fact that He created all things uh, invisible and visible, thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. He made it all. By the way, friend, I know there's a lot of Christians who say, well, maybe God used millions of years of evolution. Here's my response to that. If you don't believe what the Bible says about where we came from, six literal days of creation, then how can you believe what the Bible says about where we're going? You accept it all as a unit. 
All of God's Word, even if you don't understand it, or science hasn't yet come around to God's way of thinking. So you say, well, that's great, Derek. I enjoy all those facts, but how does that help me on Monday morning? Well, how about this? Christ is the Creator, and so let the One who made you define you. You are not your net worth. You are not white or black or yellow or whatever ethnic label is placed upon you. You are not just a Republican or a Democrat. You are not the label that the world puts upon you. But friend, made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, loved by God so much that He sent His Son to die for you, let the One who made you define you. So you see that He produced everything. And then notice what verse 16 says. He has a purpose for everything. Like that little phrase there at the end of verse 16. All things were created, watch this, through Him, and here it is, for Him. Some years ago, there was a reporter who asked Billy Graham a few questions. He said, Reverend Graham, with all the wars, all the racial tension, the immorality loose in our world today, what is this world coming to? How can you be so optimistic? And here's what Reverend Graham said. He said, Sir, I'm optimistic about the future because I have read the last pages of the Bible and it's not so much what this world is coming to, but who is coming to this world. You see, friend, Jesus Christ is the goal to which all of history is moving. The Bible says that all things were made for him. That means He has a purpose for all the good, all the evil, all the chaos, all the things that you and I can't wrap our tiny little microscopic brain around. It's all for the purpose of the glory of Jesus Christ. That means every speck of dirt from the bottom of the ocean to the top of Mount Everest, the smallest microscopic quark to the biggest star, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful angel, from the humblest saint to the most maniacal, genocidal dictator friend. It's all for Him. It's all by Him. It's made for the glory of Christ that God has been telling through this great salvation story. You say, well, how does that help me? <laughs> that means that if He produced it and He's allowed then He has a purpose for it in your life, child of God. Take Romans 8.28 and inscribe it over the story of your life. All things work together for good. And God writes it over the life of the child of God. Come what may, whether it be disaster, or whether it be disease, or friend, whether it be death, He has a purpose for it. Everything that comes into my life has already passed through His hands. And if it's got the okay from God to touch my life, then He has a purpose for my pain. He has a purpose for my past. He has a reason for my plot today. I just need to trust Him more so I can see the reason one day and understand it. He has a purpose. For everything. You see, friend, He made the forest whence there sprung the tree on which His body hung. He died upon a cross of wood, yet He made the hill upon which it stood. He has a purpose for it. And then notice this, verse 17. Not only did He produce everything and has a purpose for everything, but notice this, He preceded everything. Verse 17. He is before all 
things. There's never been a time when Jesus Christ was not. Before space, before time, before matter, He was there, eternal God the Son, in fellowship always with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That's why He really ruffled some feathers when the Pharisees started criticizing Him in the Gospel of John chapter 8 and about verse 58 he turned to the Pharisees to shut them up. He said, hey, before Abraham was, I am. And Abraham was glad to see my day. You see, friend, because he's eternal God, don't think of Christ as the great I was. He's not in the past. Don't think of him as the great I will be. He's not in the future. Think of Him as the great I Am. He is with you in this day. Hey, friend, when He ministered on earth, think about this. If anyone asked Jesus how old He was, He could look to them and say, I'm older than my mother, and I've always been around as long as my father. (laughs) Why? Because He preceded everything. You say, well, how's that going to help me get up tomorrow morning? Well, here's how. I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds my future. He's before everything. He's beyond everything. There's grace for all of my yesterdays. There's hope for all of my tomorrows. And there's His strength for this moment right now that I am in. He preceded everything. He has a purpose for everything. He produced everything. Then look at this. He preserves everything. He preserves everything. Look at the end of verse 17. And in Him, all things hold together. Reminds me of a story that I heard about. A brilliant physics professor who was touring the nation's universities giving lectures. And this professor had a chauffeur. He had a driver who would take him from... One school to the other. Well, one day the chauffeur said to the brilliant professor, he said, you know, I've heard you give this lecture that you're about to give 101 times. I've heard it so many times, I've memorized it. Why don't we have a little fun? He said, at this next school, let's trade places. You let me go up on the podium, and I'll give the presentation, and you sit in the audience, and you take my place. Well... The professor thought, that'd be a good change of pace. That sounds pretty fun. So at the next school, the chauffeur got up. He stood behind the podium. He gave a word-for-word rendition of the professor's brilliant lecture. At the end, the dean of the school opened up the floor for Q&A. And one of the boys in the crowd raised his hand and asked a question. He said, sir, uh, we know you've told us that the inside of an atom, uh, in the nucleus, there are positively charged particles called protons but magnetism says that like forces repel so my question then professor is how does an atom stay together how does it hold together and the chauffeur turned to the boy and he said son he said listen I've been all over the country and that's one of the dumbest questions I have ever heard in fact the answer to that is so simple that I'm going to let my chauffeur answer the question (laughs) but what's the answer What is it that holds all of it together? It's Jesus Christ. He's the super glue of life. The Bible says in Colossians 1.17, In Him all things consist. 
Notice what Hebrews 1.3 says also, that He, Jesus, upholds the universe, watch this, by the word of His power. In other words, not only did Jesus create life, but He sustains life. And without Jesus upholding every atom in the universe, all life would cease to exist. The cells in our bodies would disintegrate if God took a day off. In fact, I believe that's what Peter had in mind. In 2 Peter, when he refers to the future day of the Lord, a day's coming, the Bible says, when God is going to speak the word and all the molecular structure that holds everything together is going to be reversed and the earth is going to be remade new. He says that in 2 Peter 3, 9, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Somebody said, Preacher, do you believe in global warming? I say, yes, but it ain't the kind that you're thinking of. It's 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. If you're not ready, if you don't have fire insurance, you better bow your knee to this Jesus Christ. Because one day He's coming back. And friend, He won't be a lamb. He'll be a lion. He won't be a baby. He'll be a king. He won't be wrapped in swaddling clothes. He'll be wearing robes dipped in blood. And friend, when He comes again on the day of the Lord to remake the earth, what a day that will be. Think about this, friend. I was reading what I'm about to tell you in my office the other day. And I, I stood up in my office with nobody around, and I just had church. I just had to raise my hands and praise God. Does He ever do that to you? Does He ever just flip your lid and so bless you that you just have to stop where you are and say, God, have mercy? Think about this. Whether you look through the telescope or the microscope, you know there's evidence of God's divine design. Listen to this. They just discovered this. Biologists have discovered recently a microscopic protein called laminin. It's essentially, listen to this, the layman's description, it acts as a glue that binds proteins together and allows for the complex cell structures to be built. But laminins take one shape. And do you see what shape that is? With, it's the shape of the cross. Every skeptic, every atheist, every person who lifts their nose in defiance of God doesn't know that deep down within them, written on every cell of their body, is a shape of a cross. I'm telling you, He holds it all together. And yet, look how long it took modern man to come around to have the ability to discover what God had fearfully and wonderfully wrote in the cell of every human being. Oh, friend. How does that help you? Let me ask you, what's holding your life together? What held your life together all through last year? What's going to hold you together when you come to death's door? When your body is sick? When you're in the middle of a valley? When you don't understand where the money's going to come from or how God's going to make a way? What is it that's going to hold your family together and your faith together and your finances together? Friend, for me, in my house it's Jesus Christ he's a super glue he holds it all together in my life friend and I pray that you can say the same thing oh if you don't know him today repent come to him and find out how he can hold your life together Christ reveals 
God's character. And then notice Christ rules over God's creation. And then I'm done with this, number three. Christ resides in God's church. Have you had fun yet? We ain't done yet. Verse 18, almost. Just hang with me. Watch what the Bible says here. And He is the head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, here it is, He might be preeminent. Praise God. Now the New Testament offers three great analogies for the church. If you're reading in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says that the church is like a building. It's made of living stones, stones that have been quarried out of the mine of sin and darkness, were lovingly prepared by the Savior, chiseled and shaped to be placed in this grand cathedral called the church that God has been building for some 2,000 years. Then when you go to Ephesians 5, we see another image of the church. Paul says in verse 25 of Ephesians 5 that it's, the church is like a bride. She is divinely loved. She is bought with a price. She is purified by the groom, Jesus Christ. And praise God, one day uh, this match made in heaven uh, will occur at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Have you made your RSVP yet? But then Paul here gives us another image of the church. He likens it to a body. A building, a bride, and a body. And he says that Jesus is the head of this spiritual organism. Now a body is composed of many members, isn't it? And there, some are more visible than others, but they're all important in their place. God has called some to be eyes and, and hands, and God has called others to be pinky toes. And you say, well, I'm not that important. I must be a pinky toe in the body of Christ. But I tell you what, you don't think a pinky toe is important until you stub it in the dark, and then you realize how important that pinky toe is. So wherever God has put you in the body of Christ, serve Him with all gladness. And you know what? If you look at all these images of the church and how Christ, what He brings to it, notice that is the building. He's the chief cornerstone. That means He brings longevity to the church. It's built upon a solid foundation that will never be rocked, never be compromised. As the bridegroom, He brings love. And then as the body, as the head of that body, He gives life and He gives leadership to the church. Because as you know, a head without a body is dead. But Jesus Christ, being the head of the church, brings life. He brings leadership. And friend, I don't know much about the body, but I do know this. Usually, wherever the head goes, the rest of the body goes. And my head, Jesus Christ, He went into the grave and He came out of the grave. And I'm attached to that mystical body of Christ. And as He went in the grave and came out of the grave, I too am going to go in the grave and come out of the grave one day. Amen. Wherever the head goes, the rest of the body follows. Forever to live in a glorified, sinless, deathless, ageless, limitless body. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said in the weight of glory, he said the structural position in the church which the humblest Christian occupies is eternal and even cosmic. The church, he said, will outlive the universe. In it, the individual person will outlive the stars. 
Everything that is joined to the immortal head will share his immortality. All members in the body of Christ, he said, as stones and pillars in the temple, we are assured eternity and shall live to remember the galaxies as an old tale. Glory to God. Friend, as I read this passage and I understand it, here's what the conclusion that I come to. I'm a part of the church of Jesus Christ. I'm who He is the head. Where the head goes, the body goes. So what Christ has promised is going to come to fruition. And as I understand this passage, that means that as a part of the church, the gates of hell shall not prevail. No matter how dark, no matter how corrupt, no matter how sideways the things of this world may become, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. He's ruling over creation. He's revealing the character of God. He's superintending and taking care of the church. And not one second later, after the last one believes, God the Father is going to turn to God the Son and say, Your bride is complete. The building is built. Uh, go get the body. It's complete. And friend, the trumpet will sound and the Church of Jesus Christ is one-way ticket up, up, and away out of this world. There was an awesome story last year that happened in the middle of all the pandemic craziness. And when I read this story, it brought joy to my heart. Because it reminded me, the church is going to go on. Here's what happened. Listen to this. This happened near Chattanooga, Tennessee. You see the picture there of that dear lady playing a piano in rubble? Here's what happened. This took place during a local news broadcast. On top of the COVID-19 shutdowns, that area of the country around Chattanooga had received a double whammy in the form of devastating F3 tornadoes. The reporter was standing near the rubble of the Faith Community Church when their broadcast was interrupted by a strange noise. As the man was giving his report about the devastation of the storm, behind him, in the rubble of a church, a lady, a simple, a simple lady named Tracy Coates, was driving through. She saw the piano intact on the floorboards of that church. She got out of her vehicle, went and sat on the piano, and started singing and playing and her song was because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives listen church all fear is gone because he lives I know who holds the future because he lives all of that came from that heap of timber and the ruins of that church and I saw that and I said praise God you can't wipe the church off the face of the earth. Why? Because it's not about a structure. It's not about a building or an address. It's about the people of God whom He has transformed and changed. And they're spread abroad all over this world. People who said, I once was, but look at what Jesus did in my life. And friend, that's the power of Christ in His church. Do you know Him today? Do you need to come and pray today? You know what? I think the best thing that we could do as we open our altar and as we begin to have a time of invitation, 
you need prayer today. You need God to revive your heart. The Lord to remind you of some of these truths. Have you been living in fear? Have you been living in turmoil and angst over all the craziness that's happened since the end of last year? Hey, our altar is going to be open. If you need to pray, you come and pray.